0: It's just an expression Well, it's also an art Yeah,
1: like we're rolling down roll, we're rolling Season <laughs> like 2 shh,
2: shh. Welcome to the Cali High Podcast I'm your host, Chen Zonica And I've been a cannabis connoisseur For 50 years. 50 years Today we will talk about all things cannabis As they relate to California and beyond From the history of buds in the state to laws that govern its use, how notable personalities of the industry and related arts, including music, shape the industry. We will bring you reports from dispensaries, cultivators, medical patients, and recreational users.
0: 50
2: years. Hey folks, this is Chen Zonika. Welcome to Kelly High's 14th episode. I'm here with Joe, the sound guy, as always. Hi, I'm Joe. The sound guy. And this week we have a cannabis compliance lawyer, probably one of the top ones here in California and Los Angeles. His name is Steve Lubel. He also works with the United Cannabis Business Association and other cannabis entities here in L.A. and California. So he's going to clue us in on a lot of information. And before we get there, I wanted to thank all our listeners we have listeners? We actually do have listeners. Wow. And you know what? It's the, Where they are is the kind of interesting thing. So we have the different countries, mm-hmm. obviously the United States. Most Hopeful, of our listeners. Hopefully they're yeah, speaking they're English yeah. or they understand English. Well, there's somebody in France that listens as soon as the episode is out. He's really? in Paris. Cool. I believe in one of the arrondissements. Very well. and uh, in England as well. There's a few different locations. Jolly well. And now we have somebody in Argentina listening.
0: Get it on then.
2: So if we like were to look at some of the uh, the cities, Beverly Hills, Los Angeles, Burbank. Uh, let's go to, oh Whitney, Nevada, Manhattan. How many? Uh,
0: you mean numbers?
2: Okay, seven in Whitney, Nevada. Like, who's listening in Nevada? Hmm. Right. Seven in Manhattan.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Six in Snellville, Georgia.
0: Word's getting out.
2: It is getting out. And so the guy in Paris, I think, he lives in a place called uh, Clichy, ile Ile-de-France, oh, which is have. one of the arrondissements near the river, I think. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. And then the, somebody on Kauai in Hawaii, Mm-hmm. Um, and then upstate New York, Carson, California, California. Um, we lost the music. I know we did. <laughs> Does that mean we're going on too long? Yeah, we have too many listeners. Wait a minute, bro. We have uh, no. We're we just going to have to get cities. rid of some of the listeners. Okay, all right. Buenos Aires? Okay, that's where the Argentina was from. Okay. Uh, Oklahoma City. Whoa. Dorothy and Toto.
0: Can give a shout-out to Oklahoma City. Yeah? Yep.
2: Um, Jacksonville, Florida. Portland, Oregon. San Luis Obispo, California, wow. Anchorage, Alaska, Green Bay, Wisconsin, Quincy, Massachusetts, and several other California locations. Well, good for you, man. Good for us.
0: Good for us. Darn it. But good for you, man. Most of them probably
2: just tune in to hear you.
0: No. Psh, no. Dude, you, you got the guests, <laughs> the cannabis, you know, the cannabis lawyer thing, really, that I really can't understand it because how does the cannabis communicate to the lawyer? I mean, they don't—they can't speak. They, they know, send they smoke signals. Oh, didn't think about that.
2: No, I guess not. But that's the most obvious thing for anybody okay. to do: okay. set itself on fire and call a lawyer.
0: It's an educational show, folks. Shall we? Uh,
2: okay. Get... So let's hear from Steve Lubell. So, Callie High is honored to have Steve Lubell, a cannabis compliance lawyer here in L.A. and probably one of the most experienced cannabis lawyers in L.A. Good day, Steve. How are you?
1: Good day, and thank you for that.
2: Oh, yes, indeed. So, Steve, um, can you give us a little bit about your background and what type of law you originally studied and how you became a cannabis lawyer?
1: Yes, I've been a lawyer for over 30 years. Um, My first 10 years, I was a real estate lawyer representing banks, and I was um, moved on from there. I was a court commissioner, which is basically a judge signed by the other judges, Mm -hmm. not appointed or elected, uh, to the Los Angeles Superior Court, where I spent 11 years primarily in a criminal calendar, done over 150 jury trials, just hearing thousands and thousands of cases. And when I was ready to leave the bench, I have owned property up in Mendocino County for about 30 years, saw what was happening around me and I could see compliance was going to be, you know, in the forefront Mm -hmm. and moved into cannabis law, did not think we would accelerate as quickly as we did.
2: Yeah, it was fairly nascent back then, wasn't it? I mean, just in the stages of forming.
1: I mean, we were still dealing with the, you know, Compassion Use Act and and the like, and uh, it was just, you know, infancy, and then consulted on various pieces of regulation that eventually
0: became McMursa, the medical end of this, Mm then turned it into the adult end of this, and for the last
1: 10 years, have been doing primarily compliance work heavy in the city of Los Angeles, some in other areas, but most of everything, what I did was is in the city of Los Angeles. And that's where I'm at today.
2: Right. And you, you've been a consultant for the UCBA, I believe. I've been
1: a consultant and I've been an expert witness in a number of cases on regulatory issues, partnership issues, and the like.
2: What was one of the trickier ones? Uh, partnership disputes. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a nonprofit. You know, originally, every,
1: until the adult regulations came into play, everyone worked under a, a, you know, a nonprofit, and it was looked at in the industry. It wasn't looked at as a nonprofit; Everyone looked at it as a for-profit, mm-hmm. and the issue is, to the courts, was how do you own a nonprofit when you get into partnership disputes, and some courts would not enforce the law. Some courts would enforce the law and just look beyond the statutes, so it's been all over the place that way.
2: hmm Wow. So... It then became a, a for recreational use, and the laws changed so that cannabis businesses became more standard, like any other business. So, you also have worked with the. Well, never
1: like any other. Never like any other business. Um, <laughs> cannabis has always been looked at. I mean, you know, you, know, you look at things like banking and, and the like. So mm-hmm. we've always been kind of people have looked at it with you know their nose up in the air a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's hard best way to describe it. deal as a regular business without having a bank to do it with. Yes. So, uh, Steve, can you give us a little historical perspective on the evolution of cannabis law here in California and Los Angeles since the, say, pre-ICO cutoff in 2007?
1: Sure. So looking at it from the state end, the state of California's had a number of hearings in the legislative end to work on a medical set of legislation. And there was basically a a battle between legislators of who was going to get recognition. So what they did is they took three assembly bills, so each set of legislators could have their name on the bill, and they combined them for what became the, Nick Mercer, the, the medical regulations in the state of California. Mm-hmm. We operated on them for a very short period of time. And then we had Proposition 64, which the voters enacted, and it was a, we had you know Senate bills, and then we had cleanup bills. And from my perspective, the hope would have been that we would have slowed down on adult use uh, legislation. And I'm saying this from a lawyer's perspective, not from anyone else's perspective. So we could get a handle on on regulations and we can get the industry up and running. Um, That didn't happen. And we had to deal with an adult set of regulations. And going back to the medical regulations is the the intent of this, and I attended a number of the hearings in Sacramento, was that we were always going to protect the small farmer. Did not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, it was only going to be for California residents as investors and owners. Did not happen. And kind of put a very different spin on the industry uh, to this date
2: there must be some big money lurking.
1: With. right for example we were originally you were only going to be able to have let's say in a, uh, a 10,000 square foot license which let's say Mendocino for example allows you to have one 10,000 square foot canopy license you go down to Santa Barbara, Um, and they were allowing you to apply for multiple 10,000-square-foot licenses as a work grant. And you look at some business entities filing 30 applications for 10,000-square-foot licenses. Uh Um, And it Uh kind of got away from itself. Um, In the city of Los Angeles, the pre-ICO's were individuals that were working, entities that were working, nonprofits that were working under uh, the Compassionate Use Act.
2: Let me just say for our listeners who don't know, pre-ICO is pre-interim city ordinance where Los Angeles stopped the opening of new medical marijuana places, right?
1: Right. So 2007 is the cutoff date. So if you had to show you were operating through a uh, business registration tax certificate with the city prior to 2007. And that's the group we're dealing with in, in accelerating this time. They're now called the Phase One the EMMDs, existing medical marijuana dispensaries. And the city still hasn't figured out that adult use, they're still calling them EMMDs medical. But uh-huh. it's this group that are consisting of the Phase Ones that have been. Around since 2007, many of them had been raided over the years. Many had been shut down in the city of Los Angeles. There was a period of time where there was um, one DEA agent who was basically door knocking and said,
2: "Yeah, the rogue, know, don't the rogue fed agent. What was his name? I forgot his name, but oh, uh, I know it. I won't say it. Uh-huh. I wouldn't necessarily call him rogue. <laughs> he just
1: was a little cray cray. My view going into an entity." Um, By himself, flashing a badge and saying, You shut down today, or we'll be back with the posse tomorrow. Most everybody complied. There was one or two that didn't, and they got shut down and they got their vehicles seized. And, you know, family members who might have worked for, you know, government jobs lost their jobs. There were a lot of stories that went through this.
2: I remember uh, uh, Rampart Discount had to shut down. That guy came in there and told him to shut down. Yeah.
1: He went through all through Uh downtown city of Los Angeles shutting individuals down. Mm -hmm. So back to the city of L.A., so at one point, it was lots of litigation between existing operators, some who didn't qualify, some who did qualify. And the city came to a group of lawyers, myself included, three of us, and asked us to write a model ordinance for the city, which we did. The city then took that ordinance and basically bastardized it. They yeah, would, you know, at the end of what we wrote, they put a comma and write so something that totally didn't expect to We then had the city response to this was a ban. They banned everybody. The existing operators with the USCW, United Food and Commercial Worker Union, Local 770, who was very instrumental, we did a referendum, and we reversed the ban.
2: That was 2010 or 12? That's not Prop D. That was before Prop D, right?
1: Before Prop D. Yeah. Prop D was as a result thereof. I like to say we wrote the good parts of Prop D, our group, and Mm -hmm. the city kind of destroyed it somewhat. Very frustrating. I remember that process. Right, and the city never, you know, I think, got over the fact that we had, um, you know, reversed what what they had done, but they were their hands were kind of forced a little bit, and let led up to where we are now.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, How big of a role did the UFCW play in that?
1: Major. I don't think that we would have been able to. When I say we. Talking about the existing, you know, pre ICOs before 2007, I don't think they would have been ever to do it on their own. Um, we had weekly meetings and you know, fundraising and consulting and, and really getting out the the vote. It was unheard of. Yeah, they what we did in such a short period. Stepped of time.
2: up big time, didn't they? And for our listeners that don't know, the UFCW is the uh, they're the the union that covers grocery workers, farm workers, also, or yes, yeah, and uh, and the only dispens- sorry, dispensary. Sure, now sorry. we have some dispensaries in that union, and drugstores, right? Right. So part of the
1: current regulations statewide, you if you have twenty or more employees, you have to enter what's called a labor peace agreement, where you allow the union representatives come in and talk to your workers. What USCW did in the city of Los Angeles, which none of us knew about, was they were able to get the city to agree for, in all this is only in the city of Los Angeles, 10 workers, um, where the rest of the state is 20. So for the city of Los Angeles, it's 10, which ruffled some feathers that there was no input from the industry on this. And Mm -hmm. I understand both sides of it, um, frankly, you know.
2: Well, do you think that's beneficial for the industry, or do you think that small little dispensaries com- complained about going union?
1: I think it's beneficial for the workers. Um, you know, many of the you know the entities that I work were already meeting the, the union, to, you know, what the union requirements were, which is a decent wage, um, health care if you can do it, you know, worker protection. Um, and the like. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think, from a lawyer standpoint, there should have been a little bit more input um, bef- before they did that. Um, in the city of Los Angeles, it felt it was done through closed doors, and ultimately, I think we would all gotten to the same spot. It
2: just feels like it could have been done a little bit differently, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And of of the city's hundred and or maybe just under two 200- hundred original dispensaries how many of them went union
1: i would say there's i'm guesstimating there's about 20.
2: Mm-hmm. so, so many resisted unionizing
1: yes all my clients have mm-hmm. um, gone union um, because again the, the view is that we, you wouldn't be in business but for them they were very instrument the union was very instrumental and getting that ban overturned, and you have to look back as should they not have gotten something in return for what they did, um, or you wouldn't be here right now um, because
2: of what they did. Oh yeah, I think they they were they played a primary role there, especially also in in uh, Prop D, right? Correct. Yeah,
1: um, and what's happened though now is since we're. A regulated industry, remember the union represents the employees so they've had to separate a little bit um, from the employers rightfully so because they're not representing the the employers, they're representing the employees but in order to get to that point where they could represent their employees, they had to work with the employers
2: I wonder if that's why Rigo doesn't call me back (laughs) Good man Um, (laughs) Just joking No,
1: with with the you know, they've had so many issues. You know, they represent a lot of the grocery workers, and there have been so many issues with grocery workers. And I think in the last couple of even before COVID, um, they've been very active in protecting them. And um, I remember there's a Walmart that was going downtown, which has since closed and um, non union entity. And they were able, to, you know, with a couple of clicks on the phone, they were able to get hundreds of people out to protest. If you oh, yeah, that. I remember that. So they're I very. In- yeah, are very instrumental.
2: Yep. So what is the next step for California, do you think?
1: In the city of Los Angeles, everyone is working under what's called a provisional one-year license. Adhere to all the regulations um, that would be necessary for an annual license. The only distinction is, is in order to get an annual license, there has to be what's called a California Environmental Quality Assurance Review um, for each of the licenses the city's not doing that because the city of los angeles is has not moved forward in processing the annual application so until the city does their sequel review um we're kind of stuck as far as getting annual licenses are concerned mm-hmm. what i'm finding though the were provisional renewals are um up right now for renewal and you have what's called a licensing analyst and you know, some of them are more um, regular, you know, regulation heavy than others, just depending what analysts you have. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of the requirements is you have to have numerous procedural manuals, quality control, inventory control, security procedures. And some of them will look at them to make sure that you're, you're concurring to what the regulations are. And then some are are you opening up the door with your left hand or your right hand? It really depends upon the luck of the drawer, I'm finding.
2: Uh-huh. Um, a little in, bit in subjective, wouldn't you say? Yes. Yeah.
1: And frustrating, but at the same time, you don't want to upset an analyst. So it's like... No. You know, it's, the, it's the left hand, you know? Mm-hmm. I get calls and going, what should we do? And give it to them. Give them what they want, because they're the ones that's holding the... You know, I called it the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're holding that for <laughs> you. Um, and we're trying to do a workaround. There is a way to do in the regulations they call um, most of these entities will eventually become determined to be exempt under CEQA. And you can petition for a project exemption, which I'm in the process of doing now. And they're quite, they're not quite sure what to do with it from the state end because they don't have a lot of information from the city.
2: Who, who would get so an exemption? States,
1: most of these will. If you're a retail store and you know, they're looking at things like um, traffic, how much water are you using? I mean, right, it grows right, different right. than a retail store. How much electricity you're using grows different than a retail store. Mm-hmm. So retail store alone, we have what's called um, vertically integrated commercial cannabis entities. What that means is you have multiple licenses. You right. have your retail, Good. your cultiv- cultivation. There's something similar to that, which is the micro business and I as a practitioner tried to steer folks away from the micro business, which would be three or more of those licenses under one. Why? Because let's say you've got a massive cultivation problem and they're shutting down your cultivation side, that means everything gets shut down, your retail and what your third license. So hasn't happened, but cautious as we are, you know, the preference
2: would be just apply for separate licenses. So if you lose one, you won't lose your others. Right. Interesting. Rather than vertically integrate. Correct.
1: Um, so most of my clients who are, have multiple licenses, this is all the same location, have separate licenses.
2: Do they have to have separate <laughs> corporations for each license or how does that work? No.
1: It's all under the same entity. And mm-hmm. um, and these are all licenses held under that same entity. Um, and uh, for the most part, it's worked um, because, you know, in remember city of Los Angeles, you're doing indoor cultivation. Indoor cultivation is, you know, a difficult beast. Yes, it is. In the city of L.A., when it comes to power, they're finding out building and safety is just getting involved. Um, people need upgrades. The city is oh, yeah. not – they're, they're dragging their feet. Building safety and some of it, they're not quite sure what to do with some of these.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of little inspections you have to pass with the grow. Correct. Yeah,
1: and you have other, you know, you have different entity, multiple entities that you're having to deal with for inspections. Mm-hmm. Um, and the um, it's your cultivation license. The originally it was farmed out to the, the local jurisdiction, and it wasn't the city; it was the. Los Angeles County, that was doing the inspections for the state, mm-hmm. and it you know it was a little different than if the state had been doing it. Like the state's doing the manufacturing inspections, um, and again, it, it depends who's your inspector. Um, it was very subjective. Yeah, and it is subjective.
2: Mm-hmm. So, is there any other industry that has as much regulation as cannabis in California? No. Yeah. Not that I. Nothing I'm aware of. Um, Do you think that'll ever um, level off to where cannabis is less regulated? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I haven't
1: seen it. There's ultimate battles in trying to deal with Sacramento on getting some, you know, relaxing of regulations, and it's just not happening. Um, you know, on the plus side. What has surprised me in the current COVID environment is every week there is a report issued from the Bureau of Cannabis Control, which is on the state end, which gives information with respect to all the laboratory tests that were done in the state the prior week, and it's done by batch size. They don't define how big the batches is, but instead of the number going down, it's consistently gone up 90,000, 95,000. I think the last batch last week was about roughly about 110,000. That surprised
2: me. Because you mean 110,000 different batches? Batches. Now, yeah. if, it was, if I was the grower, though, I would give a smaller batch, so
1: I don't know if— if that's what's happening, if there's because what happens if your batch fails, unless it's manufacturing,
2: you can't remediate. Um, right, you, you have know, to destroy it. You lose. Yeah, you can destroy it, or you can remediate through
1: manufacturer depending what what the lab failure was for. And they break down the failures. You know, majority of the failures are not
3: pesticide; it's labeling, mm-hmm. um,
1: packaging, things like that, which is a good sign. The failure rate for is running about 5% consistently, Mm -hmm. which is a really good sign. But the bigger picture of this is until we get a handle on the unregulated, unlicensed operators – it's, it's this isn't going to work because you're you're taxing the the hell out of everybody. Your regular, you know, the regu- regulations are very tough. It's it's a scary situation that we're in. I know a number of, of entities that they're not making it. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone, you know, thinks So let's invest in this. Let's do that. But if you look at the reality of it, um, until they get a handle on the unlicensed, unregulated group, and, you know, frankly, some of the licensed folks play in both ends, both sides, you know, um, I don't condone it, but I certainly I've
2: heard it. of that, actually.
1: I don't condone the unlicensed,
2: no. unregulated folk, but I get it, yeah. um, you know, um,
1: you know, you go up in Northern California, um, you know, the majority, not to let me strike majority, a bulk of what's Coming out of the triangle is, you know, it doesn't stay in California.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a reality. Do you think that the state will ever get a handle on that?
1: They could have gotten a handle of that originally. I mean, the, you know, let's take for example in the city of LA. The city of LA city attorney says, "Hey, these are misdemeanors. This is not important to us from you know an enforcement standpoint." But if in the statute, it says if it's a you know you charge a conspiracy that can be a felony, and you could charge a felony. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I don't want people get charged or anything, but I want to look at this from a legal end. Is that if they had wanted to, they could have handled these cases over to the district attorney, and they and they could have um, quickly dealt with the issue. But for some unknown reason, there's been enforcement, but. Cops have vote payments and ex-wives. If they don't get overtime, they're not inclined to really work on some of these cases. And I say this anecdotally, but there's some truth to it is they need money to, to, you know, the thought process is they need money to process these cases. I don't believe that they could, they could be handled as routine cases. Um, biggest culprit has been readmaps. Mm -hmm. They were not, they were allowing advertising and there's a, um, there was a law that says you have to have a license number in the advertising. Well, Weed Maps made up their own their own numbers and said, "Here's your number," and not not a state license number, even though it was clear it was meant to be a state license. Um, right. Weed Maps has stopped doing that, but if you look at the CBD advertisements now in Weed Maps, a lot of them are, are uh, not just CBD.
3: Yeah,
2: I know s- some questionable shops that went from regular marijuana to CBD overnight after that happened.
1: Yeah. And you look at, you know, from a consumer side is if a consumer can get the same item for $25 instead of with all the taxes spending $75, I understand what a consumer is going to do, but what the consumer doesn't understand is that where's the laboratory testing?
2: Yeah. They could be being poisoned.
1: Often they are because if you look at now that you know, you can't use a lot of the hormone products that were put into products. The buds are much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's as a result of... Oh, plant
2: growth hormone? Yeah. chemical, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Steve, you heard about the Safe Banking Act? And yes. And do you think that's going to pass in Congress? And if it does, well, how will that change things?
1: Well, today it was included in the
2: new stimulus bill. Right. Uh, and if it passes... I, I
1: think it'll change the industry. Um, and look at it from, if I was a state person or a government person, if you want to know what's happening in the industry, let them bank. Otherwise, you have no idea about the cash.
3: Right. Um,
1: and why should I have a client, let's say, the, the, the renewal fees are in the tens of thousands of dollars, so... You, many of these locations they don't have banks or if you use your, your credit card or if you use your bank and they see anything related to cannabis they close your account down so I have clients having to drive up to Sacramento with 40, 60, 70,000 dollars on an appointment to pay a renewal fee it's unconscionable from a safety standpoint
2: oh not only that but money is dirty cash you know why would we subject the workers to handling so much cash anyway and then you would Know
1: who got what. Um, you know, there's a you're required to have a point of sale system now. The, the biggest game changer for the regulated market was what we call track and trace. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the first year or so, it was very loose, and then after the first of this year, it really got implemented. Um, and you could see the change through the reporting that everything now had to go through the point of sale system off a of barcode, and so everything is accounted for, um, from you know the babies to you know when when you buy a pre roll in the store. Um, yeah, waste everything's
2: accounted for now, so it's become much more difficult to kind of you know play play the system. Um, yeah, it seems a little bit the draconic. Uh, the alcohol. Industry isn't regulated to such a degree, is it? No. Yeah, and that's kind of not at all counterintuitive. It seems. And like. that's kind of the closest um, regulatory, you know, and regulations you could think of, and, and you know, they're heavily regulated, but not anything near what, what's happening. Yeah. Well, do you do you think uh, most of your clients, uh, the people you represent? Would be in favor of the Safe Banking Act passing today?
1: Absolutely. You know, to have banking um, to be able to act like a normal business. The way I look at it, I mean, the duffel bag days are over. I mean, everybody misses that. Here's a duffel bag for cannabis, (laughs) and here's a duffel bag for cash and exchange. Have a good day.
3: Uh Um,
1: And it was done on a handshake. And it, it it worked fairly well for, for a long time. Um, and now everyone's being held accountable. And they, so you're, I'll tell you a little story. There are people who, when I was on the bench, who I remember appearing in front of me, entering pleas for various cases, putting on probation. And now a decade later, I see them out in the industry and they are doing everything they can to become legitimate business people. They want to be legitimate, oh, yeah. they want to report, they want to pay their taxes. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating when you see a group who want to do the right thing. None of my clients, you know, and very, there's a lot of cannabis lawyers, but there's a very small group of us is what I call schooled cannabis lawyers. And all of our clients feel the same way. They want to do the right thing. Why won't you let them do the right thing? And it's very frustrating um, to see that impediment to having a lawful, regulated industry.
2: Do you think that the city uh, council has had anything to do with the the lack of shutting down the illegal operations in L.A.?
1: I think, yes, I think they, the, uh, the mayor, the city attorney um, could have pushed this. And, and it, you know, the city attorney has filed a lot of cases. Don't get me wrong. Um, but you need to really. I remember when we when we first started this, there really were only a handful of rogues. If I'm going back Mm -hmm. years and years and years, only a handful of rogues. and it just proliferated, um, where, um, and you know, it's, you take one out, they open up the next day. I get it. It's kind of a -a whack-a-mole and the hardest part is, um, delivery services. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, frankly, and I've never seen it done, and I hope they don't do it, they can arrest the person who got the illegal delivery if they wanted to. Um, I always thought that if they wanted to rattle the industry, and they've never done that, is take one... This was done up in Northern California. Take one building and seize the building. Call your press conference and going. This is what we're going to do. We've seized your building. Even up in Northern California, nobody but one person lost their building because they didn't want to. You know, as they say, they didn't want to play. Everyone else, you, you paid a lot of money, you got your hands slapped, you, you kept your building. But the idea was, you know, you had to get to the landlords and the building owners in
3: mm-hmm. order to work with closing
1: the unlawful market. Um, and I'm looking at from a public safety standpoint. Is I'm just really – I'm kind of scared with what some people are ingesting without knowing, especially
2: a medical patient who may be compromised, a cancer patient who may be compromised. Um, yeah, well, I think the city could have done something uh, a lot sooner and t- to a greater degree, and it still can. But uh, we've had some – crooks working for our city council and uh lately that's come out in the news we won't mention any names right here um <clears throat> but they were some there's of the one people and that I were didn't
1: plead, and you have another one who was very anti-cannabis strongly yeah.
2: anti-cannabis mm-hmm. who
1: may have some issues
2: who was issues. ex-law enforcement i believe he was
1: get yeah, the one who pled yes was a yeah. reserve
2: officer mm-hmm. and there's
1: Another one or more in the council that yeah. may have some issues. Um, yeah, you always thought about what was going on. Why wasn't there more enforcement? Yeah, was somebody
2: on the take or, or what? I don't know.
1: Um, well, some have been allegedly on the take for other things. Mm-hmm. Um, um, again, allegedly. You
2: know, right. Of course. A bag
1: full of cash, and,
2: and we're and only speculating. Like. Yes. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and, and the same thing is. You know, we're hearing the same thing in the social equity program now is like there were a lot of promises supposedly made that people have egg in their face. They weren't able to you know, go forward with what's happened in the social equity
2: program. Oh, I have a friend that was arrested a few times in his lifetime for cannabis, and he's having troubles uh, engaging with the social equity program. So it's like it doesn't seem to be working.
1: And the idea of a social equity program is wonderful if it's really done and it's really helping the people that need it. But, you know, a lot of them, there's a lot of backroom deals that aren't really publicized. You know, it's not part of your application, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's done on the handshake or, or whatever. And, and that's what's going on. And even with the, the the pre-ICO's, you have the silent partners who don't want to become owners. None of my clients, but I know of others. Um, you know, in order for me to work with you, you got to be able to, you know, the truth will set you free is, is the way I feel. And if not, then I, I don't want to work with you.
2: Well, we um, hope the, the city deals in a lot more truth from here on.
1: But I don't understand why they haven't moved forward with at least the phase ones and get them through the process. The city... Thought process is well, we won't do that until we take care of the social equity program people, and as you know, that was you know um, there were some issues with um, significant issues with the timing of applications. Um, They the city did an audit, but if you look at the entity that did the audit, it really is risk compliance. Mm-hmm. So my view is a city looking at more is what's our risk versus what's the right thing to do. And I don't have an opinion on this on what they should do or not do, but let's do something rather than, um, you know, what are we waiting for
2: Yeah. Uh, as far as some of this? Yeah, if I went out and opened up a liquor store just without a license, how long would I stay open? I wonder. Probably not as long as, as an illegal cannabis Dispensary. I'll tell you that. Well, that
1: goes back. And you talked about, you know, when, you know, prohibition ended, right? There were a lot of unlawful liquor stores. How many how many unlicensed liquor stores do you know of now? I do know of any.
2: Mm hmm. Uh, none. But Zero. Yeah.
1: I'll, I'll give you another example of the city of Los Angeles. So, the originally, when the state regulations came out, they wanted all these procedural manuals and they were done free form. And I spent weeks and weeks, as my colleagues did, putting together really good manuals, you know, under the regulations. Uh And then one day the city said, nope, we want these on our forms. I go, wait, we just gave you these, you know. They got indexes and attachments and graphs. They go, nope, we want them on the forms. Okay, went back and spent weeks and weeks and weeks putting them on the forms. So when the city of Los Angeles did their licensing, they came up with their own procedural manuals. And I asked them, um, to a city attorney, why couldn't you just take what the state had done, which was very, very thorough. And, you know, it's well known that there's a, a pissing match between the city and the state on cannabis. And it was almost like, nope, we don't want their stuff. Um, we want our stuff, okay. Here, so have to do a new set of manuals, and that costs clients money.
2: Yeah, why well, should they?
1: You know, they're caught in it, and if they're spending all this money with counsel who, or others, you know, who who are writing manuals for
2: them. Hmm. Well, we have certainly have a big bureaucracy here, Steve, and uh, I hope it gets a little bit easier for the cannabis industry in the future. So, anyway, I want to thank you for talking to us today. Cali High is really thankful for you. Do you want to uh, give a contact number or a website where people can contact you if they want to consult you?
1: Uh, org or com. my contact
2: information's right there. Excellent. And that's L-U-B-E-L-L. Correct. All righty.
1: Okay. And so- remember everyone these are just my opinions of having done this for a long time and watching the evolution I'm not the only say-so in this, as Dr. Fauci said the other day, um, it's just my my subjective views on it and I know there's a lot of different opinions and I respect everyone's opinions in this and I just hope we all can continue to work together to get to the ultimate goal of having a, a good, safe commercial cannabis industry. So that the operators can uh, make a decent wage, the employees can make a decent wage, and the public can get cannabis at a reasonable price, and they know their product's been tested and saved. That's the goal here.
3: Yes. We applaud that. Yes. Yes.
1: yes. yes.
2: Well, Steve, thank you again, and have a great day. We'll be talking to you soon, and we really appreciate what you've done for the industry up until now, so I just wanted to tell you that. Great. Thank you all. All righty. Goodbye, yeah, Steve. Doing this. Yeah. Our pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for listening, folks. That was episode 14 and we heard from Steve Lubell. And you know what? We were talking about our listeners earlier, but
0: You left some out. I did leave some out. How many?
2: Well, I was only looking at who had listened to the last five episodes. Okay. And so, so when I... okay, yeah, so so an Let me update. just give you the rundown. The yeah, okay. United States, obviously. France, Brazil, Canada, Ireland, United Arab Emirates, Germany, United Kingdom, Belgium, India, Turkey, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Argentina. Okay? Wow. So, quite a bit more than we just mentioned. And you know what's coming up? What? Our first annual fundraiser... What? Yeah. We've got some amazing T-shirts made. Oh. And we're going to... Merch. ...have those for an unspecified donation.
0: Oh, yeah?
2: Uh, The amount to be determined.
0: Right? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. Yeah. and Then you can keep doing shows like this.
2: Yeah, and, you know, you and I will sign them, and there'll be special first T-shirt editions of the Cali High original T-shirt. We've got V-necks for women. Oh, And uh, regular T-shirts for guys. Vs and Ts. Yep, four-color process. Really? Yeah. Groovy? You can't have Cali High logo without four colors. Are we going to
0: have to extend
2: the music again? I don't know. But anyway, folks. Also, I believe we have a, a Patreon account attached to our website. So if you would like to donate to Cali High, you like what we're doing, and you would like to keep us doing it. Feel free to donate
0: some dough. If you uh, want to have a front row seat to the next episode of the Seven Reefers uh, sampling. Oh, yeah. As soon as the COVID virus quarantine is lifted. That would be great. Like an arena. Ref- yeah. Like, you know, a Thunderdome. Mm. Might we even walking out the
2: Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> that would be cool. Because there's so we many our, listeners that have would want. some
0: what? reggae music. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Maybe we could actually become concert promoters. All right, so stay tuned for next week folks we have a surprise guest oh yeah
0: we don't even know (laughs) (laughs) stay safe all righty be well folks